it really pains me to see people hovering small helicopters at 15 and 20 feet above the ground being blissfully unaware of what happens if the engine really does fail. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back for the first show of 2015. So lots more shows planned this year and lots of big things happening. So a very special welcome if this is your first time joining us. And look, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the past shows. There's just so much to learn about this industry. And if you can learn from other people's experiences and mistakes rather than your own, then so much the better. And it keeps all our insurance premiums down. So lots of weather extremes at this time of year. So on social media, we're seeing photos of helicopters you know, covered in snow and ice come through or tucked up in the hangars from the Northern Hemisphere. While down here in the South, we're sweltering away and it's definitely middle fire season at the moment. So down near South Australia and uh, Adelaide, there's uh, several fire fronts with helicopters working the fires down there. So this time around, we've got a, a list and voice message. So finally, someone's used the, the feature there on the website. So a big thanks there to, to Jeff Denon. He's an instructor in Arizona. And let's hear from Jeff. Hey, thanks. I just finished listening to episode or uh, number 16 with uh, Philip Greenspun. Uh, my name is Jeff, and uh, I'm a CFI student in the uh, United States, Arizona, Chandler, Arizona. I live in Goodyear, and uh, I really appreciate his uh, unique look on teaching auto rotations and teaching hovering the uh, pitch attitude theory and keeping your eyes outside is something that I just learned as a commercial student and now I'm trying to get my instructor certificate and uh, I'm going to dig into some of his writings and some of his work and uh, try to maybe uh, use it in some of my training but uh, really thanks for for the uh, podcast Mick I just found you today and I'm a subscriber now so I'll be listening in the future thanks so thanks Jeff and folks if you're listening if you want to give a a shout out and have it played on the show or if you just want to tell us a bit more about where you're uh, operating from and what you're flying then you head over to rotarywingshow.com and look for the audio recorder option there on the right hand side and it would be awesome to hear from you if you're online and you're checking out the website or the Facebook Look, I'd really appreciate it if you could spare 30 seconds just to leave a review on iTunes too in the podcast section so that we can reach more people. And incidentally, just talking about reaching more people, if you're the, the one person listening in Croatia, a, a big hello to you. And if I have a crack here of using my handy online Facebook, it's uh, Bok Kahosi. And hopefully that means uh, something if I haven't uh, strangled the, the language there uh, for you. So thank you, and yeah, that brings us up to 60 countries, which is very crazy. Okay, with that out of the road, let's talk about today's episode. So just for a moment, what I want you to do is pull up in your mind's eye and picture the the high-velocity diagram that you might have seen in training or that is in your current flight manual. So how much do you actually know about what it means to experience an engine failure 
on the different points of the curve and, and actually what goes into creating the diagram in the first place. So what are the conditions and the, uh, the processes that go into creating that diagram and, and get those figures? So most flight manuals are really light on in this aspect. You'll basically be given the diagram and that's about it. Now, something else to ask yourself and just test your own knowledge is, is that diagram, is it a limitation or is it a performance consideration for your particular helicopter type? So by the end of today, you're going to know a heap more about this really important diagram and what impact it actually has on your day-to-day helicopter operations. And to take us through it, we are really lucky to be joined by Sean Coyle. So Sean will be no stranger to many in the industry. He's a super experienced test pilot and flight test instructor, as in he's actually like one of the guys who teaches test pilots. And he's been heavily involved in the aircraft certification process. He's flown over 50 different types of helicopters. He's a regular speaker at events like Heli Expo. He's an aviation magazine columnist and an author of several books on helicopters. So get ready to soak up some of the, the best helicopter knowledge and experience that you'll find anywhere. And actually what I'll do, if, if you're new to helicopters or if you're a little bit iffy on what the high velocity diagram uh, looks like, then you might want to just pause the audio now and get an example from rotarywingshow.com under episode 19 and it might just help uh, make things a little bit more understandable as we go through. Right, Sean, there's going to be a whole heap of people listening and out there in helicopter forums and things like that who know you know, exactly your background and, and who you are. But at the same point, there's going to be a few people who might be there, their first contact. So you've written a few books, you've flown a few helicopter types, you've been at this game for a while. Can you just give a, a bit of a description of you know, what you've been doing and uh, how long you've been flying for? Well, I had my private pilot's license, fixed wing private pilot's license, before I had a driver's license. My mother used to say that she knew that I was going to be a pilot from the time I was about age four. So I guess that puts a bit of flavor to the whole background. Where'd you, did you just go to a local field or were you in uh, cadets or where'd you start on the fixed wing? I was in the Royal Canadian Air Cadets and uh, won a flying scholarship basically by memorizing uh, the book. Much of it didn't make any sense when I did it, but I memorized it and uh, as they say, understanding came later. I then joined the Air Force as an officer cadet going through the Canadian military college system and uh, ended up uh, flying, going through jet training, was on the first course to fly F-5s as a basic or an advanced trainer, and um, was one of five out of the course of 16 who was sent to fly helicopters. Not very happy about that because at that point in the Canadian Air Force, if you flew helicopters, you were only slightly lower than than whale shit. Absolutely, most but, most forces like that is it's uh, yeah the the jet fighters and and everyone else comes way down the list from that. Yeah. However, that approach lasted about two weeks. When I got to the helicopter training school, it was obvious that these were much more mature instructors than the fixed wing guys and that there was an awful lot more flexibility in the way of doing things. I remember one of my first check rides where um, we were given the task of doing approach to a spot, and I completely screwed it up. I came to about a 100-foot hover and then waffled my way down. And the instructor's comment was, well, that's not the way we normally do it, but you seem to have everything under control and knew what you were doing. And I realized then that helicopters were completely different. 
So I was extremely glad over the years that I ended up in helicopters as opposed to flying fixed wing. And uh, it opened a whole lot of doors for me. Also, when I finally did get operational on a, on a tactical helicopter squadron, the freedom of action that you were given as a, uh, as a pilot was pretty astounding. I compared that to what happened to my fixed-wing brethren who would still be number two in a formation two years after they got on the squadron, and I was out leading detachments and, and taking care of a whole bunch of things. It wa really was quite an interesting and maturing process. What, machine, so, what uh, machines were you flying then, Sean? Uh, twin Hueys, Bell 212s. But we had, uh, we had quite a variety of, of missions. We did search and rescue, support of the Army, uh, we did support of scientists up in uh, in the high Arctic, and all sorts of things that were uh, just my fixed wing brethren just never got any of that variety. So I was I was pretty happy with the whole thing, and then that led me to uh, go to test pilot school. I realized when I was uh, I was at a conference and one of the test pilots from the test squadron in Cold Lake came to talk, and I thought. That's what I've always wanted to do. So I applied and uh, was one of the few people that applied and ended up uh, a year or so later going to Boscombe Down to do the test pilot school over there, which was a culture shock. What's the test pilot course like? Like I know someone who's gone from Australia across to the UK and done the Empire test pilot course and it's basically you know, thrown in as many types as possible. Yeah, it, it's changed since I went through, uh, and I'm extremely glad that I went through and, and did what I did at the times that I did. The interesting part was they would give you three flights and send you solo, whether it was a Sea King or a Gazelle or the Scout or any, any of the helicopters. You got three flights and you were off solo, and you'd better sort it out yourself, Sunshine. That was pretty amazing. The academics were... Uh, not difficult. They were different. You had to look at things a little bit differently. The academics were certainly not that, that much of a problem. One of the biggest problems I think most of us had was actually writing about what we'd done, where the, uh, the instructors would obviously bleed red ink all over the reports, but it was, uh, okay, so you went out to do this. What did you see? What does that mean? And what should we do about it? And that was... Again, that, that was the thing I think most of us sweated more than anything else. Flying the different types of helicopters uh, at the end of the day was not, again, that, that much of a difficulty. Switching, for example, from the gazelle with the, the rotor going the other direction to one that goes in the normal North American direction really wasn't a problem. Switching from sea kings to gazelles, again, was not that difficult, even though the aircraft flew completely differently. But it was the flying and then the observing and reporting, I think, that was those were the big things that you just never got asked to do at any other point in your life. And up until that point, had you had any particular sort of scares in your flying or had been fairly fairly standard? Up to that point, fairly standard. And then of course, working in, in England, there was a the British had a completely different approach to things than the Canadians in terms of training and maturity. I remember doing one of the tests in the Sea King where we ended up entering into vortex ring state. I recovered pretty nicely, but I'd never seen it before. And the British said, oh, we thought everybody had seen that. 
So there was a lot of learning. The best way I could describe it is a postgraduate degree in flying. And uh, you look back on all of the things you did in the military in, in your operational flying and go, hmm, some of that maybe wasn't quite so smart. And that seems to be uh, the reaction of most people that I've, I've known have gone through test pilot school. It comes out, and we'll talk about the book shortly, but there's a, and I've just read your, the little book of auto rotations, and there's a couple of times in there you comment on the way the militaries do things versus how you, you know, mm. sort of do it in the civil world. So uh, that'd be interesting to talk about as we go through. But um, mm-hmm. you then went back and you did more instructing after the, uh, the test flying, though, is that right? No, um, I, I stayed in the UK on an exchange tour with the Royal Air Force very long story about why and how, but it was that again was uh, a lovely experience. Again, I remember one of the uh, the really maturing parts of this was uh, shortly after I got there, they said, "Okay, uh, it's time to go and do some uh, continuation training in the Gazelle, and uh, we need you to do at least three engine off landings." I said, uh, uh, "Okay, is an instructor going to come with me?" "No, you're a test pilot. You can sort it out." So it was uh, sort of a gradual process of, of figuring out how to do engine off landings in the Gazelle, even though I'd had a couple of demonstrations of it. Uh, one other incident was uh, they brought in a Wessex uh, 2, I think it was, the twin engine version of the Wessex, and we'd flown the single engine version. And my conversion onto the Wessex, the twin engine Wessex, was uh, 15 minutes. And then the next day I was sent off to fly it to do some uh, pretty innocuous testing, but it still took me 45 minutes to get it started because of the way the whole thing was set up. So it was, it was a real maturing process. If it was in the barn, you were expected to fly it. Yep. And I guess there'd be the, exactly the, the expectation, okay, you've got this title of test pilot and you should be able to do it. So there wouldn't be much help uh, forthcoming. No, and, and, well... Uh, at the same time, if you felt you couldn't do it, you then had to say, okay, I need uh, a little more time on this to, to make sure that I know the test technique, I know what I'm supposed to do, what the issues are. For example, we had to fly the, the, the Chinook at uh, maximum weight with a water tank in the back. And we had to say, okay, we need a little priority here on the airfield so that if we, on takeoff, we can land if we have an engine failure. And that was, wasn't one of the things in the book, but it was something we had to sit and talk about and then make sure that we knew how to handle all of that sort of things. When did you write your, your first book? Because in your talks, and there's several videos of you talking online, and I know you talked to a lot of expos and in the books, you know, what really comes across is you know, that, that passion you have for actually passing on and sharing all that experience you picked up along the way. So what was the process well, behind writing your first book? Oh, thank, thank you very much. It was, it was an interesting process. I was living in England at the time, and I'd been up to the people who were the Robinson dealers, also did a lot of other training, but they were the Robinson dealers in, in the UK, Sloan Helicopters. I became fairly good friends with uh, some of the instructors there. And over coffee, one of the instructors said, you know, there are no good books on helicopter flying. And I went, oh, surely you jest. About two weeks later, I got a contract to go to Indianapolis and do some flight testing with uh, Allison gas turbines and Augusta on uh, what would have been, if it ever happened, the, the A109D. As it turns out, they never made that. But 
I got to the UK, the U.S. Um, having nothing else to do. I said, well, I'm not going to go to bars or movies. Let's get all of the books on helicopter flying and see what's there. And I did, and um, I was shocked. I thought uh, they they don't treat them with none of the books treated the subject with the the sort of seriousness that was needed in terms of how helicopters actually fly. So I set about writing what was what became the art and science of flying helicopters. Finished the contract, got back to the UK, ended up talking to I'm trying to remember the man's name, who'd just written a book on on helicopters, uh, for a much more technical book and uh, mentioned I was writing one. He had his publishers get in touch with me, and the result was The Art and Science of Flying Helicopters. I actually had to stop writing because I thought, if I don't stop, I'll never finish. And uh, so got that into print. Then several years later, decided to revise it and uh, was told by someone, if you ever wanted to do this again, self-publish it. And so that's what I did. Uh, that's sort of the background of, of uh, what's now Cyclic and Collective. All right, and there's a couple. So there's a little book of auto rotations would be the, the latest one you did, and I've just read that recently. And, and again, it's fantastic. If anyone's listening to this, it's just, you know, for the sake of $10 on, on Amazon or however you get hold of it, it's like the, the world's best mass brief on auto rotations. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, and we'll, we'll talk about some of these bits and pieces shortly because that's what the, uh, this interview is going to be about as a high-velocity uh, diagram. But, uh, yeah, look, it's it's really, really well done. So if you're listening, <laughs> go grab the book. It's good. But there's another one. There's an automatic um, flight control book. Did you co-write that with someone? Yeah, um, a man named Eddie Pallet in the UK had written a book on automatic flight control systems, and there was a chapter in there on helicopters, uh, automatic flight control systems, which was um, not particularly good. One of the things I that that I really happened to lock onto and was very lucky to find out about was about how automatic flight control systems really worked. A bit of a story. I'd finished the test pilot school. And the RAF sent me down to Cold Rose to get uh, a, a more formal course on the British Sea King. And partway through the, the course of the, the lecture on automatic flight control systems, the lecturer sort of, there was only me, and I think you know, there was only me on the course. He looked at me and he said, well, you really don't understand how this works, do you? And I said, eh, you're right, I don't. And so he said, well, how about the gazelle? Do you understand how that works? And I said, well, I think I do. He then proceeded to, in a morning, give me an education on how the gazelle automatic flight control system worked. And then expanded that to the Sea King. And lo and behold, the lights came on. And then the Chinook came along. And having understood the, uh, the Sea King, the Chinook was actually not that much more difficult. So I had a pretty good background and understanding in automatic flight control systems. And when I saw Eddie Pallet's book, I thought, he needs help. I phoned him up and he said, yes, I'd love some help. So uh, that's how uh, I helped him co-write that particular book. Was that before you did your own ones or was that after? Yes, it was. Okay. It was about uh, six or eight months before I did the other one. Okay. No, it's always interesting talking to people about books because, um, you know, I started to write one and I know a couple of people have written different books in different areas and it either seems to be uh, like, you know, giving birth and, and a, a hard labor or uh, sometimes it's easy, but uh, that's all right. We can leave that one. 
I, I can certainly say if you want to learn a subject, write a book about it. Very much so. Uh, Sean, before we talk about the height velocity diagram, if we just, again, delve into a bit of your experience, I think you've, you've got a record there. You've probably flown more types than, than anyone else. Uh, have you got a particular favorite type? Well, it, uh, I get asked that question a lot. The, the response, I think, has got to be, well, what do you want to do? If you want a, a wonderful machine for uh, flying around and, and having fun, the Gazelle is, it is one of the tops in my mind. Very simple, uh, fast, has some lovely features to it. If you want to uh, take a helicopter to work, I'd suggest something like the Bell 407 or 429. You want to take a helicopter and go to war? Black Hawk, please. I've never seen a helicopter that uh, literally says, throw me around, beat me. I love it. If you want to haul a whole lot of stuff, the Chinook is absolutely stunning for that sort of thing. So the answer is it depends on what you want to do. And is there designs out there that you haven't flown yet that you'd be, you know, chomping at the bit to jump into? Hmm. Ones that I haven't flown. The uh, AW609, love to fly that. Uh, Strangely, I've not managed to get into any of the Cobra models, which if someone's listening, maybe they can sort that out for me. And some of the new Augusta and uh, uh, Eurocopter, sorry, Airbus uh, helicopters would be nice. And, of course, the, the Bell 525 uh, fly-by-wire is, uh, is going to be absolutely fascinating to see how that, that all works. I know Nick is um, quite active in the P-Prune, and I think he was one of the Comanche guys. Were you involved in the Comanche at all? No. I pressed and pressed and pressed to get into fly it, but no one seemed to think that they needed any good publicity. Fair enough. Never did. Never did happen. All right, because, yeah, again, that's a be interesting story to try and track down in an interview. But um, of all the different uh, sort of design, you know, inventions and, and sort of novel modifications, is there a couple that stand out, you know, like Notar or the, the things like that that may not have gone into production that were, were quite interesting as far as, as test flying? One of, one of my continuing pet peeves is the lack of a low airspeed indicating system. I was lucky enough to fly the HH-65 when I instructed at the Navy Test Pilot School. And having an, an airspeed system that works down to two knots, and I'll tell you the wind direction uh, down to two knots, from, and, and it was stunning. And the more I see about the procedures we're using for Category A and all of that, we, we're, we're hamstrung by lack of low airspeed information. If we had that, we'd be able to unlock uh, a whole lot more performance potential out of the helicopter. You talk about that heaps in the um, auto-rotation book, about the fact that you, know, you can just discard the, the airspeed indicator in mm. many of the auto uh, parts. But what's the difference? What does a low-speed um, air in, in, airspeed indicator system look like compared to your normal sort of pitot tube and static ports? Well, it, it's um, on the HH-65, it was a spinning pitot system on the top of the rotor head. Two little pitot tubes that spun around, obviously with a whole variety of slip rings and, and everything else, to get that information into the cockpit. Uh, other people have done similar things with swiveling pitot tubes on the uh, Cobra and now on the, the D model Apache. The, the A model Apache had the same system on the top of the rotor, but obviously when you put a radar up there, you can't do that. So they, they've worked it out with swiveling pitot tubes on the side of the helicopter. And 
There's a couple other things that could be done to, to develop that. A, a new version is called the optical air data system, and it's a couple of laser beams that focus outside the rotor disc and uh, give you the same sort of information. But to date, they're all expensive and complicated. Someday somebody will make a breakthrough and we'll have something that, that uh, works. I understand the Russians did it with pitot tubes in the rotor blades at one point. Okay. That'd be uh, interesting dynamic yeah. that, yeah. As far as um, you know, the guys that you look up to as you're going through and even now, is there is a particular uh, you know, champions in the industry or, or people that, uh, as you're going through training or through your, your career that you really looked up to? The one that stands out, obviously, and you mentioned, is Nick Lapis. Uh, Nick is uh, an absolutely wonderful man, combines a great technical uh, talent, uh, experience in flight testing, and uh, good, just a good practical sense of what's going on. The number of the Bell helicopter test pilots that, that I worked with, uh, I was impressed with uh, their basic common sense in terms of how to go about developing stuff. It's been a while since I, I was directly involved in any of that. Any of the manufacturers, uh, flight test people, are really pretty interesting guys that have gone through quite a bit and developed some very, very nice helicopters. Yeah, see, the, the ones you see flying around now is so much work. And you talk about uh, in some of your videos a lot of the regulatory stuff that goes into certification as well. And it's, it must be a, a massive project now to get a new helicopter off the ground and, and through and out to production. So, um, Oh, it is. I started doing certification flight testing in 1995 with about 15 years of flight test experience. And it took me two years to start to understand the certification process. It's complex. Uh, regulations and requirements are written in somebody's blood from a long time ago. And uh, it's, it's a very complex, subtle business. But it's ended up giving us some absolutely wonderful, safe helicopters. Well, what I'll do is you've got your really good talk that you gave to the CHC Safety Conference. It's up on YouTube. So I'll link to that um, video in the show notes for, the, for this interview. And uh, folks, if you're listening again, you can go follow that YouTube and find out heaps more about what Sean's talking about there too. And uh, okay. at the intro of that video, you talk about being the, uh, the heretic and you know, burning at the stake for some of the things that you talk about. So we might see if that comes out as we talk about the, the height uh, velocity diagram. And I, I guess, again, reading from the rotation book where you go into the diagram, a lot of that information would come out of that certification process there too about what people actually or what manufacturers actually have to test to. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... It's... Go ahead. Sorry, if you've got something to add there. Otherwise, I was going to go into... The, into um, yeah, talking about the definition of what actually is the, the height velocity diagram. Yeah, okay. The height velocity diagrams, one of those really interesting bits of information. In light helicopters, transport category, or sorry, normal category helicopters, certified to part 27, which is 7,000 pounds and below, it's in the performance section. If you've got more than 10 passenger seats, it's in the limitation section. And people don't appreciate that. It's an, an attempt to try and show the pilots where it's unsafe to operate the helicopter in the event of an engine failure. And it's unfortunately, it, they're not well described in most of the flight manuals. You have to really understand, you know, the conditions under which it's tested, which is basically, uh, there are there are some uh, differences on this, but normally 
for for any of the helicopters that you're you'll see out there now that have been made in the last thirty years, probably it's done at maximum weight at a seven thousand foot density altitude with less than two knots or less of wind and landing on a smooth hard surface and it's uh, I've used the the terminology before, and I think it's quite apt. It's measuring with a micrometer, marking with a chalk line, and cutting with a chainsaw. Um, it's very precisely done uh, under conditions that would be difficult for an operational pilot to duplicate. And um, at the end of the day, we, we attempt to take out any of the variability that might be caused by pilot skill or experience by adding in things like intervention delay times, uh, and and all the rest of it, and when the operators, or sorry, when, when the manufacturers develop the the HV diagram, uh, they obviously don't want to to bend airplanes while they're doing this. One, it doesn't look good, and two, it's expensive. So there's there's probably a reasonable amount of uh, margin built into it, but not a whole lot. All right, well, I've got a heap of questions to try and lead us through this and, and tease out some of those things you've talked about. So if I can jump into those, and then as we go through, if we, if we skip something, you let us know. But I was just going to, one I didn't actually have written down, though, but you mentioned there is it's the 7,000-foot DA. How do you do the logistical planning for that? Like, where do you actually go and, and plan the weather and things like that to sort of get that, or is that interpolated from the results you get? No, typically in, in North America, you'll go to... Uh, uh, one of several places, uh, Roswell, New Mexico, Alamosa, New Mexico, or Albuquerque. And there's certain times of the year then where you'll go there. Uh, I remember Roswell, New Mexico, we would go there and the conditions would be right from 6 a.m. till 8 a.m. every morning. No wind, density altitude within the margin you're allowed. And, uh, we had a smooth, hard runway to use. But after about 9 o'clock, you'd have five or six knots of wind and you couldn't do the testing. Right, so they must drag the process out. Yeah, it takes a while. The, the manufacturer will develop it and then the certification authority, in, in my case, I was working for Transport Canada, would come along and verify that it was uh, what the manufacturer proposed was safe and suitable. Right. The other names I've heard is the you know void curve or dead man's curve, and I think that's probably how it was taught to me initially going through like really early training. And I kind of lashed onto this idea that you know if you're in that area, it's kind of like you know immediate death if you entered that area type thing. So you just want to talk about that sort of I don't know if there's other names you've heard used for the curve and that misnomer, I guess that you know if you're inside that curve, you're not going to die straight away, and that depending on the energy and the wind and all those sorts of things, that the definition of land safely is a broad definition? Yeah. I can give you uh, two examples of it. Uh, doing, uh, doing the HV testing in the, the Bell 430, I screwed up the, the uh, landing technique. And uh, myself and the, the Bell test pilot were sort of wrestling each other on the way to the ground. We hit pretty hard. And I thought, God, I've... I've damaged this helicopter. How, how, ah, I'm, I'm mortified. And um, there was no damage. I mean, it was, a, it was a fairly firm landing. And we looked at each other and went, oh, shit. 
but it was okay. So there is some some sort of margin in there. To, like I said, the manufacturer doesn't want to damage the aircraft, so they're, they're going to stop testing before they get to the point where they would yield the landing gear, for example. And uh, so the, the dead man's curve is is a real misnomer. There are some places in there that if, if you don't do the right thing and you're sitting in, in a hover at 300 feet, you know, you really don't have many options in what you're going to do and uh, or, or what you can do. And there's a good chance that you will sustain damage to the aircraft or to yourself. But that's the nature. As I said, it, it's an attempt to show people where you ought not to operate. Historically, was there a particular event that triggered this to become a requirement or was it a, you know, like a committee type process? Do you know what the background is to it? I, I really don't know the background, Mick. I'm, I'm sorry about that. I can imagine that it sort of came from the Bell 47 days, uh, which is where most things seem to have originated. You know, you had to show somewhere where uh, it, was, it was not a safe place to operate the helicopter. And again, I don't know if you've got the stats there or if you can give a, just a general idea, but it, I guess this all ties into the actual, you know, the real world occurrence of engine failures too. So is there current stats out there on, you know, per flight hour um, engine failure or per year or per pilot career uh, about how often engines are failing at the moment? No, and that's, that's a whole other subject. The, part of the problem is there's no data, no real hard data. Because if you land safely following an engine failure in the United States and there's no damage to the aircraft, you don't have to report it. So just as a, as a sideline here, I, I was looking at accidents uh, data, I think for 2010, and I noted that there were three accidents in crop spraying helicopters where they ran out of fuel. Well, there were three accidents that caused damage where they ran out of fuel. Uh, knowing as little as I know about crop spring, I know these guys operate with almost no no fuel on board. So I can imagine that there was an awful lot more landings where the engine failed because of fuel exhaustion. But the guy landed safely, and they brought out a couple of jerry cans and filled it up and flew it away. Yeah, um, so it just all goes unreported. Yeah. So so the data is not there. However, I can tell you that in the flight test world. We use a, a number of uh, one engine failure every 10,000 hours, or sorry, every 10,000 hours or 100,000 hours of operation. Uh, there will be a, an unexpected engine failure. And have you had an unexpected engine failure yourself? I've had three. Okay. Yeah, in my, in my short career. Uh, one of which was probably self-induced. Uh, sorry, one of which was, was self-induced. The other one was stupidity and the... Th- Third, the, the third one was an actual engine failure over which we had no control. So I think one of those, um, you, you roll, uh, again, I, I guess from, I'm taking from the from the auto rotation book, because you talk about uh, always checking when you roll the throttle off for the practice that it doesn't kill the engine. Was that one of the, the times? Yes. Yes, it was. Uh, I, I, I noted on the pre-flight that when you roll the throttle, looking at the, the throttle position at idle, it was below the mark, and I didn't understand the significance of that. So I gave a student an engine failure, and was quite surprised. I said, why is that other sound coming on, and why is the oil pressure zero? And what's, oh, it's a real engine failure. The second one was, uh, um, we, again, this one, we, we, I ran the helicopter out of fuel doing training, 
a bit of a, I joined a club I'd much rather not be a member of. We had 55 gallons in the fuel tank when we started. We normally burned 45 gallons an hour and we'd be in airborne for 45 minutes. But obviously the mixture wasn't set right and the low fuel light on that helicopter was on from half the tank being full. So you ignored the low fuel light. And uh, what really bothered me afterwards was twice in the previous 10 minutes, the little voice had said, you should switch fuel tanks. And I didn't. So that one was, was uh, my fault completely. But the real main engine failure I had was uh, in an H46, and the engine literally blew itself up. That was pretty shocking. So I've got a bit more respect for engine failures, perhaps, than, than some others. It's really interesting at first when you talk about that that initial, you know, what's going on, is this actually happening type response. Yes. So can you talk about the, the delay that's built into the um, into the hot velocity diagram? So uh, you talk about, um, so you, yeah. uh, I don't know, can you talk us through how you're doing? So you're sitting there in the hover and you, as a test pilot, wind the throttle off. How does that work? Well, that's that's part of the safety features that you, you build in the civil world. There's a one-second intervention between simulating the engine failure and moving the collective on the basis that you've got your hands on the, on the cyclic and your feet on the pedals anyway, or you deserve whatever happens to you. Um, so, so in order to uh, overcome this, this can't be happening to me concept, they build in, in the civil world, a one-second intervention time. The military uses two-second intervention time on all, all the controls. And that's, uh, that's really pretty spectacular to see the difference between the two of them. I can only imagine seeing this. So, so what's it like? You're sitting in the chair and you're actually you're rolling the throttle off yourself and then yep. just counting one, two before you react? Or, or how does it actually yes. physically work out? That's, that's how it works out. There'll be instrumentation and data recording that'll, that'll make sure you're not lying later on because the authority wants to make sure that you know you've done this all properly um so you'll simulate the engine failure and then you put in what you consider in the civil world a one second intervention in the military what you consider two seconds the the difference is uh in the high hover in in the jet ranger or or the oh 58 in the jet ranger uh wait one second drop the collective but you won't yaw because you you correct that as soon as you see it. In the military, that two-second intervention will mean about a 90-degree yaw uh, before you do anything. That uh, must which, be uh, exciting in, uh, in uh, air quotes. <laughs> yes, it's, it's quite exciting. And, of course, one of the problems with doing it is you're at – five or 600 feet above the ground, you really don't know where the wind is coming from because you've got no good indication unless someone's put a, a balloon up there for you. So um, you can sometimes get some, some interesting effects out of that. The interesting part is that it didn't seem to make a whole lot of difference to the actual results. And this was quite interesting as well. The, uh, uh, let me see how to, how to explain this. The high hover point seems to be the same height regardless of whether there's any wind or what weight you're at. It's really quite surprising to see how much effect just having only that potential energy to convert to kinetic energy has. 
having done them a lot at obviously much lighter weights and lower density altitudes than the, than the certification requirements in training people, 420 feet in a jet ranger is, that's the number. All right, so, to- so what's on that graph, even though it is at, um, you know, sort of high DA and the weights and things like that, it's still pretty accurate for, for low for lower weights and lower DAs. Yep, indeed. Okay. And so just confirming that you're actually taking the throttle to idle and you're not actually failing the engine completely in all these test points. No, um, although there are some people who do that uh, in training, which is, which is a good thing. The other, the other interesting point is that intervention time is only valid above the knee of the curve. Below the knee of the curve, the, uh, there's no intervention uh, in the civil world. You can uh, react immediately, but the test points are done at uh, takeoff power. So you've got a, this incredible juggling act to get the airspeed, altitude, and everything all sorted out and be at takeoff power, fail the engine, and then carry out the landing. The last point, and I really want to emphasize this, is the low hover point is done with only raising the collective. And I, I wondered at that because I'd done lots of hovering auto rotations at higher heights than that in training. But the reality is, is that when a real engine failure happens, you have this, this can't be happening to me thing. So the end result is that the certification requirement is you only raise the collective from the low hover point. So um, and that's why it ends up being about six or seven or eight feet above the ground because most people, when they get to eight feet and, and chop the throttle and can only raise the collective, they say, mm, I don't want to go to 10 feet because I think I'd hurt. We'd land pretty heavily. So it, it really pains me to see people hovering small helicopters at 15 and 20 feet above the ground being blissfully unaware of what happens if the engine really does fail. They'll be surprised. Yeah. And again, reading your your writings, you, you really it comes across how sensitive uh, you are to that now, having done all the, the testing for it. The other thing you mentioned is on the on the takeoff roll, you've got uh, climb or well, you've got takeoff power set, so you've got a, quite a high collective setting. What are the collective settings for the other test points? Level flight. So if, if you look at let's say uh, thirty knots and what four hundred or. or 350, 300 feet, whatever. You're at 300 feet, 30 knots in level flight. Okay. Yeah. Is does it matter? Like you're obviously doing this in a, in a brand new machine. Over the the life of that machine, does the 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 curve or the graph change as the aircraft ages or maintenance, or it's kind of in, independent of that? The only thing that could could have a significant effect on it is uh, erosion on the rotor blades. Really, that's that to me. That's about the only thing that would make a big difference on it. As the rotor blades get worn, um, they, they become less efficient, don't produce as much lift for the amount of drag they, they have. That's about the only thing I can see that would make a difference. Okay, and given the, the lack of time involved, it'd be a, a fractional different difference? I don't imagine there's that much time for that to, to take effect. I don't think it would have a huge effect, but it's one of those things that if you take a typical helicopter and put it at about six inches above the ground and fail the engine and just keep pulling on the collective to maintain six inches, at some point, the rotor just gives up. And 
that's a, a an interesting demonstration of coordination, but it also shows you that you don't want to get the rotor RPM too low because you just lose everything. Yep. And that's that's where the erosion on the rotor blades would show up. That you would end up with a running out of uh, thrust at, at a higher RPM. Okay. How many data points are done? So to get that curve that you see in the, in the flight manual, uh, it's obviously, you know, it's drawn from all the, all the data uh, results. But to get that curve, are you, are you testing each point on the outside or, or how's that put together? It's more the buildup to get to the, the end points. It's going to take typically, I would say, eight to ten uh, data points working backwards from you know for the jet ranger the one i'm most familiar with if you start at a thousand feet above the ground and 60 knots it's going to take you eight to ten data points before you get down to 420 feet in the hover and then you'll spot check from there down to the knee do another three or four points to get the knee sorted out and then starting from the hover, the low hover, that's another typically five or six data points before you say that's enough. And then you'll work your way out to the knee, uh, and again, another five or six data points. So I'm not sure what that totals up to, probably 30, uh, 35 points. All right. And is it verified by a second test pilot or it's just the one pilot working on it? How's, the, how's that process work there? Well, the, the, the test pilot, the company test pilots will, will develop it. I don't know whether they cross-check each other, but then the authority will come in and spot-check it as well and say, yes, okay, what you've shown us is suitable. Okay. And the, the touchdown itself, zero, zero, running landing, you talked about the hard surface. So if we're landing on a, a plowed field and things like that, then quite possibly you know, that, that chart's not going to be valid. Uh, so can you talk about the, the actual touching the ground part? Uh, yeah, there's no requirement for zero ground speed, which is another one of those sort of hidden mysteries. And that's why you do it on a, on a paved level surface or a hard level surface. There's no limit on, on the touchdown speed. So obviously, if you're, if you're flying over uh, plowed fields, and that sort of thing, you need to uh, take that into consideration. At the end of the day, what you want to do is walk away from an engine failure. So... You know, for example, the, the, the knee of the curve is typically out at about 40 knots, uh, 30 to 40 knots. And if you have an engine failure there, you don't have enough height to, to, to do anything. All you can do is keep the thing straight and cushion the touchdown. So you're going to touch down with some speed. And uh, the, the surface you're on is certainly uh, not conducive if it's a plowed field to uh, running on. But the authorities over the years have said, no, we, we have to do this on a paved surface for repeatability because otherwise there's just too many variables. For sure. And I guess coming back to actually rolling up the machines and testing, that'd be a, a bit of a protection against actually damaging the, the test machines. Yes, I, I, I can recall, re- relate that uh, in teaching uh, this subject on a short course to a uh, manufacturer, which will remain unnamed, um, we got to the end of the discussion. On this, on this short course, we didn't actually go and do the HV curve, but we, we talked about it. And I said, don't ever do this on a grass surface. And um, the students just sort of shifted and looked at one another. And I just thought, you guys had a problem, didn't you? And uh, 
knowing the manufacturer and knowing the, the location where they were probably doing the testing, I said, you were probably testing it here, and it's all a grass surface. And they sort of went, yeah, you're right, we did, and we wrinkled one up. I said, yeah, well, that's why. You know, you, it, and it turned out the manu this manufacturer had not made a single-engine skid-equipped helicopter in many years. So they'd lost all of that corporate knowledge, and uh, they got burned. Yeah, interesting. And I guess the other thing to bring out is, in fact, you're not actually testing to failure. You're almost testing just to the test pilot's um, comfort limit would be the... Yes, I, I, I used a term, uh, sphincter pucker factor. <laughs> yep. Well, talk us through that. Like, what's of all the different test points? Like, what's the uh, what's the one that gets the the heart rate racing the most? Where you're pointing at the ground and it's all it's all pretty close to the line. Which one's the scariest? It has to be the high hover point. But you've built up to it, and you know exactly what's coming. You know what's coming next, and you've built in a margin of error for it. So, and it's this is an interesting point about it. The regulations or the requirements are for no more than 20 degrees nose down. I've been to significantly more than that, and it was quite comfortable because I'd built up to it and I knew what was coming. And in the process of, of teaching this to people, you could see that, that they're, they're pretty happy. Okay, well, we got 25 degrees nose down here. That's fine. I'm, I'm happy doing it. But it, I mean, you're ready, prepared, and, and you know what's coming up. So it's the most exciting, but I don't think it's it's anything more than you're you're quite prepared for it. Okay, and I'm, and I'm asking some leading questions here, but I'm, I guess I'm, I'm really keen to to get your your thoughts and and, and I guess share that out here. But uh, is there an inference that you can make that the average pilot could go out uh, to their local airfield, uh, take the machine out, and do an auto session, and sort of safely attempt you know hour or you know an hour of autos operating from the curves of the the graph with no dramas? You need to do it with an instructor who knows what he's doing. Um, my uh, my experience in doing it at test pilot schools with pilots and engineers, uh, particularly the pilots, just about every one of them at the end of the, the uh, session would say, why was I never shown this before? And uh, that was that was really quite enlightening. You know, why... Why is this not shown to people? Because people go out and blithely hover in a whole bunch of places where you say, God, if the engine fails here, you're going to hurt. Fortunately, we have much more reliable engines than we used to have. So people become a little, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Complacent. Immune to thinking about it. Complacent, yeah. You talked about that being in the two different parts of the flight manual. So the limitation section versus the performance section. Um, and I guess the, the question around that is insurance. If if you do prang a machine and the investigation found out you're inside those curves, is there cases that have been null and voided for insurance and things like that? Like, how's that handled? I don't know about the insurance aspect. The, the reason is it's like the difference between a Cessna 172 and a Boeing 747. If you get on a Cessna uh, or on a Boeing 747 as a passenger, you have a... a pretty reasonable expectation you're going to walk off the airplane. Maybe not where you wanted to land for some other reasons, but you'll walk off the airplane. You may go into a diversion or something, but you'll, you know, at any stage in the flight, you can walk, they can stop or do whatever, and you can walk off the airplane. And that's the same thing for a helicopter. Uh, and, and the 
transport category helicopter has got much more safety features in it than the normal category helicopter. And that's, that's one of them is, uh, you know, the, the HV curve is a limitation. You don't operate in there because you've got, you know, a whole bunch of people on board. That's the, seems to be the rationale and logic for it. Okay. If we could leave some, or if we can go and give folks some, some practical things and from your experience and, and talking on this. So all the guys who are operating out there and the, the work actually needs them to be in that, um, in that curved area. Oh, actually, sorry, before we go into that, we haven't talked about the, the, the low height, high speed section of the curve. Uh, is there anything you know, sort of useful or that pilots should know about that? And I think you mentioned in the book that even newer helicopters are sort of starting to leave that part out of the diagram. Yeah, the, it's, it's one of those things. If you're going to fly along at, at uh, 10 feet above the ground at high speed and not have your hand on the collective and not know what you were going to do if the engine does fail, then there's no hope for you. So, so most people have said, well, this makes no sense to have a one-second intervention here uh, if an engine fails. You would probably be, be doing the right thing instinctively anyways. And all it does is means you can you can do some clever party tricks by climbing to get some height and then converting back to sixty knots and or whatever and, and doing carrying out what for all intents and purposes is a normal engine off landing. So that's why it's gone away. It, it really didn't serve any useful purpose. Okay. And back to the folks who are doing power lines or external loads or filming where they're they're operating in that curve. You know, from your experience in doing a lot of testing, things like that, and look, I know it's a, a very blanket sort of, there's so many different um, environmental considerations, but is there a current best practice about what to do when the engine fails in those aspects? The best advice I could give there is make sure you know exactly what you're, what the symptoms of an engine failure are and what you're going to do at every step of the way. I had the pleasure of, of when I worked at Bell Helicopter, I had the pleasure of training a news a helicopter pilot from the Los Angeles area, who was uh, was one of these guys. He was he was just so good. Uh, I was I was there to learn as the instructor, and so I asked him a bunch of questions, and and he said, "Well, I never ever go below three hundred feet and sixty knots, and if I'm below five hundred feet, I'm talking to the cameraman all the time about where we're going if the engine fails." So that and. and and I know of people who've had engine failures in the middle of the HV curve and have walked away simply because they were well-trained. They were spring-loaded to the engine failure position and um, had the right areas in front of them to, to, to do the landing. So the best advice is know exactly what the symptoms are and know exactly what you're going to do at any stage when you're down in that area. On approaches, um, we obviously fly through that, that curve and things like that. So what's the relationship between flying the approach with the low power setting and, and coming in and the, the curve? Like, is it just, just for, so none? So it's just for takeoffs and, and the hovering flight? Or the- yeah, I mean, it, it's the, the, the number of variables that would be involved to do that would be astounding. We'd still be doing the Bell 47. Okay, so a couple more questions to close things out. And, and again, <laughs> we'll take advantage of your time while we got it. What's, what's one thing about you that people wouldn't know from your flying career? What's, what's something that's probably not a lot of people know? Ooh, I probably don't know it. Um, that's, that's an interesting question. I've been extremely lucky to have done all of the things that I've done and worked with the people I've worked with and, and seen the things I've seen. I guess 
people ask me, how did, how did you write all of this stuff? I said, well, I guess I just remembered and paid attention. Uh, I think the, the test pilot training certainly helped in terms of observing and reporting. I'm not sure that answers your question, but gosh, I'm going to have to think about that one. That's all right. Well, what do you think about that? Um, Ray Prouty, and uh, you know, uh, would have loved to have been able to get him on the show at some stage. And obviously, we, we lost him uh, there yes. last year. Uh, I, you you I knew had, Ray quite well. Can you tell us a little bit about I, that, Ray? Ray was a wonderful, wonderful man. Not only very technically knowledgeable, but very humble, very nice guy. Knew a lot about a whole lot of other things as well, and obviously had a passion for making sure that his knowledge and, and experience got, got passed on in some way. Uh, many years ago, when I was living in Ottawa, Ray came to give a uh, series of lectures at, uh, to Transport Canada and the Transportation Safety Board. And um, I had him over for dinner. And one of, one of my colleagues said, you had Ray Prouty over for dinner? I said, yeah. He said, God, where's the tablecloth? It must have been full of diagrams. And I thought, ah, sadly, no, there were no diagrams on the tablecloth. But uh, he was just a wonderful man and uh, will be greatly missed. Uh, very much so. There's a, a, yeah, a lot of respect out there for him. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, very, un, very sad and unfortunate. Uh, on, on that, though, again, looking at your career, if, if your grandchildren were getting into helicopter flying or if you go back to, to when you started and you were doing the uh, Canadian Air Force cadets, is there, you know, one or two pieces of advice that kind of override everything you've, you've picked up along the way that you would tell them about or impart to them? I would say it, it's useful to start in the fixed-wing world simply because it's, it's, uh, the learning curve is not quite as steep. It's a lot less expensive. And um, there's so many things that carry over from the fixed-wing world in terms of air sense and uh, a bunch of other things that uh, it's just a, a much easier way to start, certainly uh, for instrument flying as well. Uh, if you want to get an instrument reading, get it in the fixed wing world first and then go to helicopters. Fair enough. It's good. All right. I know you've got uh, a heap of different hats and roles on, but is there any particular folks want to find out more about you, Sean? Is there a particular website? Have you got a consulting business that you're working on at the moment? I run a consulting business called Eagle Eye Solutions, which uh, I do a lot of expert witness work on helicopter accidents. Uh, I need to revise it, but uh, it, it does have the contact details and everything else. I get involved in some very interesting legal stuff with all of that. It's uh, every single case is different, and um, uh, in most in most instances, I'm able to. Uh, to uh, write stuff and do things to uh, to help fellow pilots. Occasionally, there's big screw ups by the pilots, but generally, uh, I, I find I'm able to uh, say, "No, here's what happened, and here's why this guy's not at fault for it." So that's uh, quite a fascinating uh, a bit of work. Interestingly, the the business has not been as busy recently, which I guess is good in the big picture. It, it would be nice to make more money, but uh, that means that there's a lot less accidents happening. All right. And big things planned this year. Are you speaking at uh, Heli Expo again? Uh, speaking at Heli Expo, I'm going to be in Australia uh, in April uh, so far to run uh, what was Ray Prouty's course on helicopter performance, uh, stability and control, and then uh, doing that through the University of Kansas. Uh, and the same thing in San Diego in September. So far, 
maybe someone else will come up with more of them. Sounds good. All right, look, Sean, thank you so much for your time. Uh, as I said, the little book of auto rotations was just fantastic. Um, you know, the actual finesse and, and level of detail in that uh, was much more than of, of anything I've gone through before. So I uh, really appreciate that and, and sort of take that away with me. And uh, yeah, again, thank you so much. And hopefully I might catch you when you come to Australia. I hope so too, Mick. It would be lovely to have a beer with you. And, and uh, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I enjoy the questions. They always make, uh, make one think. And if you've got more of these, uh, let me know. Great. Thanks, Sean. Cheers. Thanks. Take care. Good night. All right, so talk about going to the source if you want to learn something. So in, in talking to Sean for this interview and reading his book, The Little Book of Autorotations, I've learned more about the, the high-velocity diagram in autorotations than I probably have in about the last 10 years or so. Now, that might be saying more about my knowledge base than anything else, but if there was anything new that you picked up in that interview, then I'd really encourage you, while it's, it's fresh in your mind and you've been listening to Sean, to go through his book, The Little Book of Autorotations, uh, while Sean's words are still there in your mind. And it's about 10 bucks on Amazon Kindle, uh, and you can probably find hard copies around. And I'll put a link to the book in the episode show notes on rotarywingshow.com. But really worthwhile and a lot of information there that I'm, you know you probably just haven't covered before in that amount of detail. So that was Sean Coyle that you've been listening to. Sean is speaking at Heli Expo 2015. So if you're at that event, please do say g'day and that you heard him on this podcast. So Sean indicated he's also you know he's quite keen to do more things like this. So if there is a topic that you want him to cover or questions that you want to ask him, you can leave them in the comments section on the episode for the, on the on the sorry on the website for this episode. So look for episode nineteen at rotarywingshow.com, and look, we might be able to get Sean back for a, another interview down the track, or do something like a, a live webinar. So just a, a plug for our sponsor today, trainmorepilots.com. If you're looking for marketing help for your aviation business or your flying school. Please do check out the resources there. Uh, that's over at trainmorepilots.com. Now, I have a date in mind in mid-August 2015 for the first World Helicopter Day. And there should be a press release out soon with more details. So keep an eye out for that and we'll start bringing that all together. You can sign up for email alerts at helicopter at, sorry, at worldhelicopterday.com. That's worldhelicopterday.com. And that website will slowly develop from here on out. Now, don't forget, you can also get email alerts for new episodes for the show when you download the list of the top 10 helicopter books for helicopter aircrew from the show website. You'll actually find one of Sean's books on that list. So it's been a pleasure joining you again this week. So thank you for listening in. I'm Mick Cullen, and that is the Rotary Wing Show for this week.